Just 2.20, for I'm crucified with Christ, therefore now I no longer live. Jesus Christ now lives in me, and this life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What a great reminder of the marvelous truths of a transformed life and what that looks like. Well, welcome. It's been a while since uh, we've been back in our verse-by-verse study. We've been off for a few weeks, and if you're a student, we welcome you back. You might not want to be here. I know you have to be, but we're glad you're here with us. And if you're new, if uh, just look at that QR code in front of you. Let us know of your visit. It contacts us and lets us uh, answer some questions to help minister to you. It's been a few weeks, and, and that uh, we were in Luke and just uh, talking about the advent of Christ and what a blessing that was. And then we moved on to January 1st, and we had a review of the GOMAD training, uh, evangelistic training. Van Parzielli brought that for us, big blessing to us for that, reminding us of, the, of our number one job this year. And then last week, we were able to have our uh, Brazil ministry presentation, two teams, uh, nine men who traveled, and what a blessing it was to hear how the Lord worked in each of their lives and, and the blessing of that ministry. So we're back today in our verse-by-verse study through 1 Timothy. I'd like you to turn with me in 1 Timothy chapter 3, if you would. We're going to read verses 1 through 7. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Verse 2, an overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Verse 3, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. Verse 4, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. Verse 5, but if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Verse 6, and not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Verse 7, and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Stop right there. It was a stormy night in Birmingham, England. Hudson Taylor was to speak at a meeting at the Severn Street Schoolroom. His hostess assured him that nobody would attend on such a stormy night, but Taylor insisted on going. He said, I must go even if there is no one but the doorkeeper. Less than a dozen people showed up, but the meeting was marked by unusual spiritual power. Half of those present either became missionaries or their children became missionaries and the rest were faithful supporters of the China Inland Mission for years to come. Faithfulness. During a seminar for pastors, one breakout session was extremely insightful, taking in the practical implications of consecration or faithfulness, set-apartness. To give my life for Christ, the speaker says, appears glorious. To pour myself out for others, to pay the ultimate price of martyrdom, I'll do it. I'm ready, Lord, to go out in a blaze of glory. He said, we think giving our all to the Lord is like taking a $1,000 bill and laying it on the table. Here's my life, Lord. I'm giving it all. But the reality for most of us is that he sends us to the bank and has us cash in the $1,000 for quarters. And we go through life putting down 25 cents and 50 cents here and there, talking with the neighbor's kids about their difficulties, coming and doing children's church and VBS meeting a new person and making them feel welcome, meeting the needs of someone who can't meet a need. Usually giving our life to Christ isn't glorious. It's all done in all those little acts of love, 25 cents at a time. It'd be easy to go out in a flash of glory. It's harder 
to live the Christian life little by little over the long haul. I believe you got that right. That's the kind of faithfulness the Lord expects of every follower of Christ from Hudson Taylor to you and me. And I would add to that that if it's not in 25-50-cent increments over time, it probably wouldn't be the $1,000 all at once either. So it's not surprising as we think about faithfulness in our first illustration and faithfulness and set-apartness in the second that that's what he expects from those who lead the church. As Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, recorded for us in 1 Corinthians 4.1, he says, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In, that, in this case, in other words, because you do, moreover, it's required of stewards that one be found, what's the last word? Trustworthy. Faithfulness, trustworthiness, these are all very basic traits for a leader, very basic traits for every believer. Now, to preserve our time today, we're just going to review quickly what we've learned so far concerning God's guidelines for public worship. In particular, the qualifications for elder leadership, because we get into public worship right at the beginning of 1 Timothy, because we saw in 1 Timothy 3, Paul gives the reason for the ride, and that each man will know how to conduct himself in the household of faith, which is the church, the pillar and support of the truth. So the letters are written to know how we're supposed to do church. And so... Uh, it makes sense then for us as we look at this and we get to chapter 3 and qualifications for elder leadership, that Paul has authority to say this and it has authority today. But as we pick up in verse 1, we know it's Paul saying, you know, look, Timothy, I know you have some problems there in Ephesus. I was there with you. We know it was difficult. We know there were leaders that shouldn't be in place there, and I put two out. Uh, you may have to get rid of some leaders. You may have to bring in leaders. You may have to reform some but whatever you have to do, you have to make sure that they meet the requirements. And of course, the language shows that these qualifications are still relevant and authoritative for the church today. So verse 1 says this, look there in your copy of God's Word, it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. So Paul clarifies to Timothy right at the beginning and to the church how this journey is to begin. And we saw that it's always been a call for those men that God chooses to lead. We saw in the Old Testament that God appears to them in a vision or in a bush or some way calls to them and makes it clear he he's, wants them to speak on his behalf. We saw in the New Testament era that Jesus himself went and asked those he wanted to lead to follow him. And so it's not surprising for us to see us in the church age. We have the same type of thing. We have a call, and Paul makes it clear the Holy Spirit is doing the calling in the heart for the men that God has marked for his service. And Paul labels it as a trustworthy statement, which just means that the following statement can be relied upon. It's a clear guide. This is going to be the standard. And we marked four principles from this verse, and we'll go through them very quickly. Number one, the office of overseer, elder, or bishop is held by a man. And he just says, if any man, of course, that's not the only place we see that. We've looked at that extensively. If you've missed any of these support passages, they are certainly available to you online. Next, we saw number two, that there's a definitive call in the background of a qualified man. Two different words for desire are going to define that call. He will, it says, aspire to the office, aspires to the office of overseer. There's the first one. It's an unbidden, a very strong personal desire to reach for that office, which will work its way out on the outside in desiring to submit to the qualifications we're going to see in just a minute, bringing the life into compliance. So it's unbidden. He wasn't looking for it. Guidance counselor wasn't saying you should do this. People say you've got a great voice or you have a good uh, persona on stage. You should pastor. has nothing to do with that. This is 
an unbidden, very strong personal desire to come under the qualifications. And the second word is he will desire the office. And it's a fine work it says he desires to do. That's a different word altogether. That's a passionate, consuming compulsion. So in other words, it's going to overshadow everything else. The candidate then that God may be choosing is going to begin pursuing it on the outside and it'll be compelled on the inside. And whatever it was he was doing before now pales in comparison to the movement that God is doing in the heart of the individual to bring them into compliance. And these two desires have one focus and we saw it is to oversee the church. And the office of overseer, episcopos, is, we saw this is the principle connected with that. The office includes the labor of oversight, to lead people, to instruct them, to deal with difficulties, to supervise. We saw from our introduction, the word can be used interchangeably with a number of biblical words that apply to this position. It's used interchangeably with elder, the word presbyteros, simply speaking of spiritual maturity. It certainly can mean an older person. It doesn't have to, but it has to go along with spiritual maturity, which is why we see just a little bit later, it's going to say, not a new convert. So the person who leads the church can't be a brand new believer. There has to be spiritual maturity and a long walk that shows they've accomplished those kinds of things. And then we see it interchanged with shepherd. Poimeino, translated pastor many times in the Word of God, and that's doing what it takes to take care of the flock. It's one who feeds. He feeds and makes decisions. He moves them. He treats their injuries. He watches out for them. It's translated by the word guardian a number of times, the same word. And then we looked at 1 Timothy 5.17, which gives an overall description, and we'll see this in a number of months. Number, verse 17 says, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Those who serve as elders, as pastors, as overseers, proistomy, that's the word, they rule well, they are to rule, that's the verb, to be ranked first, uh, to set over. So all these words refer to the same person. And, and then fourthly from last time, 1 Timothy 3.1, the office of overseer is a fine work, and that's our fourth principle. The Holy Spirit's call creates a desire to lead the church, and that's a wonderful calling. And what we get to see here, we get to see God's perspective of it. Because there can be some trepidation as I even think about my own situation and, and God intervening kind of in my life and where I was headed. And then I, I saw what my pastors of my church uh, had to go through and deal with on a regular basis and the difficult times they had. And I was filled with a little bit of fear about I don't really, I, don't, I know that this is the way the Lord's moving me. I don't really desire this job. And so that's kind of how it is. And so you've had this trepidation. So we get this, we get the Lord's perspective you're going to speak for him through the preaching of his word. You're going to have his heart for the church. You're going to lead and direct through the authority of the word. And you're willing to go when he says, who can I send? And it's a demanding lifelong task, but God looks at it as a wonderful thing. And that's always good, isn't it? When God says, this is a wonderful thing, you know, Proverbs 31, when he says, this is the woman I'm well pleased with, then that makes it very important, doesn't it, to read the passage. And so anytime we see God's pleased with something, it's just a good thing that's a very calming effect on the whole thing. You realize you'll have what it takes to go through regardless of what it is. It's how God views the work. So elders are to rule the church, they are to lead it, and it has to include teaching and preaching. And we saw last time that the office will also include praying for the church and caring for it and loving the church and shepherding the congregation and guarding them. And it's going to include, we saw last time, setting policy and ordaining other elders we saw it will include giving a future account to the Lord of the church and of her people. And, and this whole passage really shows us, by example, what it looks like to lead in life and ministry. And that's a serious responsibility. 
And because it's a serious job, the Lord hasn't left the qualifications up to chance or preference or what people may think might be a good fit for the pulpit. It's not a human ability. And we saw last time, God has set the standard. And as we said, these are exclusively character, lifestyle, and testimony types of qualifications. We just looked at some of the jobs there to do. This, this list doesn't list the jobs. It lists the qualifications to do the jobs. And godliness is what's described here, as we looked at last time. We're not talking about some double standard. Godliness is not subjective. It's defined very clearly here. And there is just one standard for all believers, those who attend and those who lead. And this is the example that's to be displayed. So in other words, what may be tolerated in the congregation can't be tolerated here. The example is here, but godliness is the standard, and that applies to everyone. So every time we see, a, every time we see an instruction, realize it's going to apply to you the same as that it applies to me. Now look at verse 2 if you would. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. And what you're seeing here is just the front end of what he's going to aspire to. See, these are the things he's going to bring life, to bring his life into subjection here if the Lord is calling him. So Paul's clear. The position is that of an overseer or an elder or a pastor or a shepherd, one who's in the primary position. All those words apply here. And the following characteristics are not obviously an exhaustive list, but represent really the bare minimum for elders if they're going to grace both the church and the world. And then it says, must be above reproach. And, and that verb be is in the present active indicative. So this is the reality of the life of those who lead the church. And above reproach is an important word. We saw that. It just means that uh, there's no handle. And the implication here is that there's nothing that you'd be grabbed a hold of in the individual who's leading the church's life that we put, be pointed to that could create something that would injure his reputation. And that was our fifth principle of church leadership as it relates to the elder and the overseer. He must be in a present state of blamelessness. Now, that doesn't mean that he's never committed a sin in his whole life anymore. That would mean that you've never committed a sin in your whole life. No one's been blameless all their life. It doesn't mean that he has to be perfect before he was a Christian because no one was perfect before they were a Christian. No one could do that. Everyone before they came to Christ lived in sin and ever-increasing wickedness and only wickedness. So the point here is that present tense, man must have a life without blame. It has to do with what's true now. It could have something to do with what happened in the past if it's still impacting his life now, but in general, it has to do with blamelessness in the present active and indicative. And this is a key requirement. So, in fact, everything that comes after this in our passage defines here what it means to be blameless. That's the general, basic, overall requirement. He has to, it has to do with his reputation, his observable conduct. And if blamelessness is part of that example, then guess what's required of you? Blamelessness. And in case you're unsure about that, I gave you a number of passages last time. I'll give you just one to remind you. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul tells the church of Philippi, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, just pause right there. If, if that were true in our life, if we did everything, everything, without grumbling and disputing, that would be a huge improvement in our, all of our lives, would it not? That means we're not complaining and we're not arguing with people constantly. But here is he telling the church, he says, do all things without grumbling and disputing. Now, mark this, so that you will prove yourselves to be, here's a synonym to our word, blameless. 
Do all things without grumbling or disputing. The world watches you, and there's no handle. You see? Nothing that you can be called out on. And not just blameless, but also it says innocent. Literally not mingled. It's talking about pure wine, not fermented or mixed with anything. And here, mixed with the world. A life that is without grumbling and disputing, blameless, not to be called out, and not mixed with the world. And if that's the case, children of God, it says, above reproach, amamos. Ah is a negative particle, just is a, it makes it the opposite. And mamos is blemish. So no blemish. Nothing obvious people can see that it makes it look like they're unsure if you're a believer. So, do all things without grumbling and disputing. You'll prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God above reproach in the midst, here it is, of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. People often say as a believer, I don't think it matters what the world thinks about me. I would propose to you that the Bible says numerous times that it does, and here's one of those places. We've looked at a number of them over the last couple of weeks. When the world looks at you, they may falsely accuse you of things, but Peter talks about that, doesn't he? He says in, in, the, in the resurrection, it'll be clear that they were wrong. But what we want to be sure is that there's no blemish that is obvious that people begin to say, well, are they truly believers? It's unclear. You don't want to be in that position. So you can see blamelessness required in the pulpit, blamelessness required in the seats. Now, it's easy to see with that illustration, I think, that, that the burden put on you as well, that the passage is not saying that those who serve in the church are to be sinless, okay? Any more than you could say that about yourself, that you're sinless. But it's the long work, isn't it? It's the work of repentance constantly. It's the work of short sinless. It's the work of keeping track. It's the work of being in the Word. You want to be comparing to the Holy Standard, which is why we encourage you constantly to be in the Word each day so you can read what the Holy Standard is and you can conform your life to do that. It's not possible to live the Christian life and not be in the Word each day because we're going to pick up habits of the world. We already have habits as adults and baggage in our own flesh that haven't been glorified yet. So there's going to be a constant battle going on. If you're not supplying the correct direction and the correct standard, then you're going to begin to be conformed to the world and not conform to holiness. So, it's just that now as we look at the examples both for the pulpit and for the seats, it's just that for those who lead the church, those who are part of the assembly, there's not supposed to be any issue of life that's an ongoing problem of sin. Okay? I think it's just obvious, I think. We, we understand that. And that would cause, of course, us to be blamed and would eliminate our example, probably create an opportunity for contentious people to undermine and criticize the integrity of the ministry, and they'd have a right to do that, or our church, or the work of Christ, see. And, and when you think about this, beloved, and I said this to first service, when you think about this, you think about uh, pastors who've fallen, okay? And there's been a number of them, and some of them are very public. And remember I told you a number uh, of uh, weeks ago that, you know, Satan isn't really concerned about the individual specifically. It's not like he's like walking around saying, you know, uh, I'm going to make sure Kurt Parker really fouls up. He doesn't care about me. I'm really, I'm really not that important in the big picture, except to the extent that he can make the Lord look bad. You see, that's really what it's about. It's about the Lord looking bad. How much can we undermine what he said by what he did? You see? And so it's very, very important, I think, as you think about pastors who've fallen, and you think about either they're left in the ministry 
in the pulpit and continue to minister and they're forgiven or they're removed and restored and put back in. And I understand restoration and I understand forgiveness. I understand all that. The problem with that is this. Once you've begun to fail in this area and you have to be removed and you get put back in, what have you done to the standard? It isn't here anymore, is it? Now it's down. Okay? We're not talking about has to be sinlessly perfect, but we are talking about a life that is established as a, in, in the present active that there's no, it's blameless. Okay? And once you've messed that standard up, you've lowered it, then it becomes lower for everyone. And so that's why these are non-negotiables. Now, let's look at the next verse. And here is where we're going to get up to this. Because without exception, you, if you aspire to the ministry, you are called to this. You have to live up to the standard. Okay? Now, look at verse 2. What can't they be called out for? Because blamelessness is connected to the next uh, several verses. So look at verse 2, if you would. 1 Timothy 3, 2. An overseer then must be above reproach, here it is, the husband of one wife. And, and the Greek statement is qualitative. It's rendered one woman man. And that's principle number six, the guidelines for public worship and the qualifications for elder leadership. Here it is, he's devoted to one woman in his heart and his mind. In other words, he can't be a player. He's not a philanderer. He's not a womanizer. And again, the verb form is still present active. And last time when we went through this, we clarified what this doesn't mean. And I won't go through all the background. If you need that, go online and catch up. It, it, it isn't speaking about what it isn't speaking about here. And we won't go through all of that. I'm just going to give you the, the, uh, the highlights. This isn't a prohibition on polygamy. Polygamy wasn't even a major issue in this period of time. There were ton, lots of immorality. They didn't have to have multiple wives. Um, Paul regarded polygamy as unlawful and forbade it for everyone, not just church leaders. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2. Everybody. No one was allowed to do that. So this also doesn't mean that you could never have a second wife. It's not saying that. It could have said that very specifically, but it didn't say that. This is speaking about character and not marital status. There are some places in Scripture where God permits and honors second marriages. This also isn't speaking about divorced people. And again, that's not what the text says. And it could have easily said just that if that was the intent. The Bible teaches that remarriage after a divorce is within the will of God under some circumstances. Now, we also qualified this last statement. Now, when you think about those who are divorced and remarried, there are some other places where these requirements for elders uh, that may impact that question of remarriage, especially if it's divorce and remarriage, because it doesn't do it here. Later in the passage, which we're going to see next week in 1 Timothy 3, 4, it says he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? So then the question becomes, if there's this combination of situations, and there's always combinations, people come to me and say, what if this is true? What if this happened? What if this happened before he was saved? And what happens if this happened way back? And so there's always questions. So you have to carefully go through the requirements and see if it betrays some problem. Verses 3 and 4 would be another test you'd have to apply. Does this situation expose an inability to manage his own household? That's the question then. And so then it becomes right in focus. So the passage also doesn't pertain to being single and as such disqualified for leadership. The issue here is not marital status. Uh, it, it's, it's not marital circumstance. It's morality. And so to say that because you have to be a husband of one wife means if you're not married, you can't be in the ministry, then Paul wouldn't have been able to be in the ministry. That's not the issue. The Bible assumes marriage, and in assuming marriage, it assumes these things have to be true. And so it can't be that. And it's also, you know, this is, this is a moral qualification. He is 
devoted to one woman in heart and mind. Because, beloved, you could be married for, to one woman for 40 years and never qualify morally as a one-woman man if you were always a player, see? If there was always something going on on the side. You could, be, you could have that one woman you've never divorced, but you'd never be qualified to be in the ministry. So I think you can see that, that it's pretty difficult to add things to it and baggage to a scripture that just says one simple thing. You just have to go with that and then add on to that the qualifications later, which may clarify the position. Now, this is a very high qualification and one that Paul has carried along by the Holy Spirit to start with. So men, that's the standard of holiness. And so it applies to you too. There are no other women in your life. You are totally faithful to your wife, committed totally to the woman of your vows, in heart and in mind. That should be the reality of your life now. In 1 Corinthians 7, 2, we referred to it just a minute ago, as it really prohibits more than one wife, because you have to be one, have one. And 1 Corinthians 7, 2, pretty clear. You may remember this when we studied this letter. But because Paul says of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman to have her own husband. And his own and her own indicate they belong to each other, which is clearly to the exclusion of all others. Okay? And so I think it's very clear here. You can see it's the same standard both in the pulpit and in the seats. Now, look at the rest of verse 2, if you would. So it says, an overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Here they are. Temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Now, let's look at these and we'll get as far as we can, and then we'll wrap up for today. Nephileon is the word temperate. It means wineless. That's the word, wineless. This is the term for abstaining from wine entirely. And this is precisely the definition used by Josephus for the time period, when he uh, addressed the, the drunken immorality that was inherited in the worship of Diana and other idol worship. He applied it this way. This is a precise meaning. So principle number seven, in guidelines for public worship and the qualifications for elder leadership, he is a man that does not participate in drinking. And we'll see this requirement later in verse three, a little bit more extensively. And so we'll comment more then. But remember, there's no double standard here. This is one standard for every believer. Now I say that and, and confess to you that if there was ever an issue that I find myself addressing more often than I would care to, it's this one. Because I think that believers, I always think believers would know this, that this is the issue. And, and many of the biblical points I need to point out regularly are some of these. I'll just give you an overview. We'll get into more of them later. Drinking today is not a one-to-one -one with biblical drinking of wine just in case you were confused about that. And we'll get to it in just a minute. And there are literally hundreds of passages that cast alcohol in a negative light. It's not surprising then that we have this instruction here. Or give examples of people who used alcohol and ended up in dissipation. And that's just biblical examples. That's not anecdotal examples of what we know and you know. And given the fact that no passages in the Bible condone drinking alcohol and all forbid it, or at best caution and limit its application. And the compromised testimony that is obviously part of participating in alcoholic beverages inevitably creates a blemish, which you just got through talking about in Philippians chapter 2, that the world can look at and say, 
are you truly born again because you're doing this, see? And then you have to make some reason why it's okay. And as soon as you try to justify yourself to the world and you're participating in worldly activities, you are already at a disadvantage. Not only that, but it creates a bad example that it sets for your children. On top of that, putting the believer in the position of taking on encumbrances in sin as opposed to setting them aside, as Hebrews chapter 12, 1 says, let's run the race to get the prize, laying off the encumbrances and sin that so easily besets us. And so you're taking them on, and believers take them on as encumbrances instead of putting them off. And adding a vice that is rarely ever unloaded without pain and heartache, rarely ever. And then the clear teaching from the Word of God right here. All this seems to fall, though, on deaf ears. Now, in biblical times, as you think about a one-to-one, the trampling of grapes to produce juice was really a joyous affair. It was a time of of, uh, celebration. It was a time of the harvest. It was a time of of the Lord's blessing. And so they caught that fresh grape juice, but immediately after producing the juice, the lack of refrigeration and the presence of bacteria caused it to ferment rather quickly. So in ancient times, people would add water to it in greater and greater amounts in order to keep it from becoming intoxicating. And this perhaps draws your attention to a story of Jesus, where he did his first miracle. What did he do? He changed water into wine. Now, you may imagine that wine is what you think about when you think about wine, except that's not what he did. What Jesus did is he took water and turned it into what we just got through talking about, fresh crushed juice which makes sense when you think about the comment. What did the host say? When they started the wedding, they had a certain wine that they were drinking. How did the host describe it? You saved the best wine for last. So what were they drinking? Diluted wine to keep them from becoming intoxicated. Jesus comes and turns these jars into fresh juice, which is called wine, but not, in, not fermented. Can you imagine Jesus creating something that would cause sin immediately? No. And so I think we, we get that all out of balance. And again, like a lot of passages get misinterpreted and people think it means one thing. It doesn't mean that at all. I think you can see as we make this flow, this is, this is the general trend of Scripture, particularly as we understand the prohibition here. Now, the joyous affair, of course, in the squeezing of grapes is not the whole story. As we said, there are literally hundreds of warnings and bad examples Concerning alcohol, just a few of them so you can see them. Proverbs 23, 29, it asks some questions rhetorically. It says, who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of the eyes? All rhetorical. What's the answer? Those who linger long over wine, those who go to taste mixed wine, do not look on the wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup. Don't even look at it. Don't be tempted by it. When it goes down smoothly, verse 32, at the last it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things. Your mind will utter perverse things. You won't be able to manage what you're doing. You'll be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea or who one who lies down on the top of a mast. They struck me, but I did not become ill. They beat me, but I didn't know it. When shall I awake? I'll seek another what? Drink. How about Proverbs 31, 4? It's not for kings, O Lemuel. It's not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink. Why is that? Well, they'll drink and forget what's decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. 
Verse 6, mark this. Give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to him whose life is bitter. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his trouble no more. So even in that, even in the instruction, if you're going to give it to anybody, give it to somebody who's on their deathbed, give it to somebody who's in the dire depths of, of poverty and they'll forget. But all the warnings remain the same, right? So it's a cautious warning and a limited application like we pointed out. All other things remain true concerning all of this. But it's certainly not, as Lemuel says, not for leaders, not for kings, not for those who want to lead. And that aligns perfectly with what we just read. And if you think about the bad examples, and I'm only naming just a few out of a hundred I could probably pull out. Think about Noah in Genesis chapter 9, who got drunk and then exposed himself and, and created all kinds of wickedness going on in his family. Think about Lot in Genesis 19. I don't even want to talk about it. And think about David's sons in, in 2 Samuel 13, who got drunk and then slew one another. How about Leviticus, where the priest is not to function in the tabernacle if he drank? was always the rule for them. And then you move on to Isaiah 28, how they disregarded that command and shamed the Lord and his house and embarrassed themselves in front of the people and set a very bad example. And then later in Isaiah 56, and, and their uses of alcohol caused them to function at the basest of levels. And the Lord compared their habits to those of animals. And how about the Nazarite vow? If you think about that, the most sincere commitment to walk in holiness before the Lord uh, in the Old Testament, certainly, and as in early on, even in Paul's life, forbid the use of any kind of alcohol. And so we read really the simple adjective. There's an example that's to be set for every believer. It's just so clear. The compromised testimony that participating in alcoholic beverages inevitably creates must be avoided. And it has to be the example of those who stand in the pulpit, and that is the example of holiness. And ordering your family will definitely carry along with it, avoiding a bad example set for your children. Because if you do it, your children are going to do it earlier, and they're going to do it longer, and they're going to do it more. So you have to have these discussions with your children early on. It has to be something they understand very clearly, because the pressure is immense. Hebrews 12 is just so clear, as we illustrated just a minute ago, we're to avoid encumbrances and sinfulness that so easily beset us. And lay those aside and run the race to win the prize. And because the elder in the church has to be unable to be called out, just so hard though to unload these vices and these sins because we're so steeped in them and we, we think that they're very, very important. And I think we should also point out that, that the obvious meaning certainly applies, winelessness, but there's likely a larger application, an extended meaning in, with the word. So we can add to it principle number seven in guidelines for public worship. Uh, the qualifications for elder leadership, he's a man that does not participate in drinking, which is just very obvious, the literal meaning of the word, which allows him to be alert, watchful, vigilant, and clear-headed, which is another, is connected to that meaning of that word, okay? So, anybody in spiritual leadership has to order their life this way. Any, any excess, though, can be applied here. I mean, if you think about it, you know, there are a lot of other things in which we can be a bad example, not just alcohol. Uh, sometimes it's often gluttony and drinking are linked. It seems to be that, at least in the past, that overeating has been known as the preacher's sin, and, and that's a right criticism. Uh, but the standard is here. And we've pointed out, not because God expects a higher standard from the pulpit than he does from his people. God expects his people to have that high standard of holiness and of godliness, and he sets the standard in the pulpit so that people can see the proper example. See what that's supposed to look like. How does that look? Now, 
I'm going to move on because the topic's going to come up again, and we're going to see some other things in two verses. And I hope that I didn't offend you or trample all over your freedom in Christ if that's what you're using to justify your actions. I just want to be clear about freedom in Christ. You do understand that freedom in Christ has to do with there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have freedom in Christ that you'll never be condemned because of your sin. You don't have freedom in Christ to do what Scripture specifically forbids. That's just kind of obvious, I think, right? So we want to avoid using that kind of terminology, which would be false, a false way to apply it. Now, it's not my intent, of course, to, to uh, accuse you. I'm not, certainly not doing that. It's not my intent to, to offend you. I think you understand my intent. It's what it always is. What does the Word of God say? What does it mean by what it says? And how does that meaning apply to us? And I took a lot of time with it so you can understand how that, our understanding of that passage really corresponds very well with the rest of the warnings of Scripture all the way through. I didn't give you my opinion. So please don't go out and say, Pastor's opinion is we shouldn't drink. I didn't give you my opinion at all. I've got a number of opinions about that, but that wasn't them. I just gave you what the Scripture says, and we cross-referenced it so you could see it. And none of these things springs out of legalism, and I want to point this out too, because you can avoid alcohol all your life and still not be godly, okay? You could not drink because you don't want anybody to think bad of you as a Christian. That's not why you don't drink. Although you don't want that blemish, you don't drink because the Scripture says you're supposed to be wineless and you want to be pleasing to the Lord, so you obey. You see? That's what you do. So it's not legalism. And as always, as we went through that, it's always my desire to be transparent with you. If you've got questions about what we just studied, if you've got uh, some things that you'd like to say, I'd be happy to answer them, hear them, point you in the right direction, whatever is helpful. Now look at verse 2. We're about out of time, so we're going to close out with this. An overseer then must be above reproach, husband of one wife, our word we just looked at, temperate. Here's our next one, prudent. Sophrona, Greek adjective. It's a compound word to keep safe and then understanding. And so the idea there is to keep the understanding safe. It's a quality of mind. It doesn't mean long-faced. It doesn't mean stern. It can be winsome. It can be joyous. It certainly can have fun with the Word of God. Its intent, though, is to caution against being frivolous, acting like a clown, doing something flippant to grab attention. It's very popular in modern churches today, putting some big extravagant display up here so you get somebody's attention, some edgy video, something that you have to do, some way you have to act to grab attention to something. This is all these kinds of things that are freelancing, and the, the Word says no. And we looked at extensively what Paul's prohibition on peddling the Word of God, acting like a car salesman, so you're trying to make it say something and make people respond in a certain way, or, or the adulteration, Paul says, that happens when you actually change what the Word of God says so you can make a point. These are all forbidden. You can't freelance with the Word of God. And here, it's very, very simple. The, the uh, disposition of those who lead the church has to be prudent. And so the guideline for public worship here in elder leadership is the overseer must be one who is, and it's just kind of extended, serious, earnest, sound, in order to secure a good understanding of the Scriptures amongst those in his charge. See, you have a responsibility to be sound of mind, to be serious when you need to be serious, and do the things you need to do, not messing with the Word of God, taking what's in the kitchen, as I told you before, and moving it to the table and not spilling any of it, and doing that over and over and over again. That's the, that's the responsibility. Not with long faces, not with sternness. It doesn't have to be that, but it has to be serious. See, 
Now, what's the next qualification of an elder? Let's look there. We're just enough time to squeeze one more in. He must be respectable. And this is a Greek adjective, kosmion. And we've seen this before, haven't we? We saw it earlier when it's talked about uh, how women are to adorn themselves, uh, not like the world does, not like the examples of the culture, but like the Lord adorns everything that we look at in beauty and in order. The Lord's very much in favor of that. Here we have kosmion, but here it's translated respectable because it has to do with orderliness. Respectability comes from orderliness. It's illustrated in the life and order of the cosmos, of course, the way things move and don't collide with each other and do the things they're supposed to do. And so it illustrates in the life, then, as guidelines to public worship, the overseer must be one whose life reflects organization. Now, obviously, sermons have to be organized, but not only that, a general lack of confusion, a lack of chaotic activity, a life that's in control, okay? Now, Remember, and I haven't stopped to say this, but there's only one standard of holiness, okay? And of course, seriousness and earnestness and a lack of confusion and a lack of chaotic activity in the personal life and in the family is the example every believer is supposed to follow. And that's the, that's the guideline every believer comes up under, right? So again, it's not perfection every time. And I've had children, uh, they're all old now, but they were younger. Sometimes it's chaotic temporarily, is it not? If you've got little ones, it might just go, it might go sideways like in a minute, okay? And then you're not going anywhere, okay? You were going to go to church, but then somebody threw up all over the car and everybody else, and now you're back outside and, and everything's chaotic, everybody's crying or whatever, you know? I mean, not talking about that, okay? What we're talking about is a life that's ordered, a pattern of order, a pattern of discipline, a pattern of coming up under a certain plan, okay? So that you're guiding your family in a certain way. Sometimes it'll go sideways, but most of the time, it's not going sideways. And the reason it's not is because you're an ordered person. You're a planner. You're thinking about it. And listen, if you're going to bring your kids up in discipleship, you're going to have to be that kind of person, okay? You've got to have a consistent lifestyle example and a consistent word to them all the time about what it looks like to walk with the Lord, and you model that. And that comes from an ordered mind. And that's the idea. A lack of confusion, a lack of chaos, not perfection every time. It doesn't mean that plans never fail and things never go sideways. Obviously, you know, I, I could write a thousand ways how not to do church and three that you can use, okay? And the only reason I know that is from experience. Three things that may work, a thousand things that probably won't work. That's because it messed it, I messed it up, okay? But here's the thing. It's the testimony, here it is, of peace, okay? orderliness, which we'll see later for reflected in the family order. We're going to see in, in uh, verses 3 and 4 that you've got to order your family well or you can't be here, okay? And people often say, it's an old saying, you take care of the church, the Lord will take care of your family. That's wrong. What I would say to you is this. If you don't take care of your family and bring them up in orderly, order, orderly and they don't follow the Lord, you can't lead the church, okay? So you better make sure that that's your priority. Your first ministry is to make sure your kids come up in godliness. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to fill any kind of ministry position because you have to be able to order your own family well. So, a testimony of peace, a testimony of order, and we'll look at that uh, in, in the next two weeks, Lord willing, as we look at some qualifications that have to do with ministry. And so we're going to close, but just look at those last two words. We'll look at this next week, Lord willing. Hospitable, it's got to be hospitable. This has to do with his ministry. That's the love of strangers. That's the actual word, love of strangers. And then able to teach. So he has to be able to communicate spiritual foundational issues for life. And that's a requirement. That's the only difference really between those who serve as deacons and those who serve as elders. 
Okay, so the, the, same, the same standard for life required of those who serve in the official office of deacon with the exception of being able to teach. And so very important to the church and to the family uh, among your children too, being able to teach and be able to compile those things that they need to hear, understanding they can teach them a lot of things, but you need to teach them a few things and they're very important. And so those things are what we're going to look at next time, hospitable, and then able to teach, and then we'll move on into the next verse, all right? Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. It's a joy being with you this morning. Let's give our time to the Lord. Lord, we thank you today for just the joy of being with each other. We thank you for the reuniting, uh, for those students who've traveled, for our families who've been away, and many still just getting back. We're very grateful for uh, a, a young church, a vibrant church, one that uh, does things and, and, um, and goes and comes, and Lord, we're just uh, very grateful for that, for the energy and for all that uh, these folks bring uh, to the ministry here. And Father, uh, we are grateful too that we can, as we were instructed earlier in this letter, as we know that you've told us this is what's supposed to be done in the church, that we're supposed to pray for all men everywhere, for leaders and all in our authority. And so we want to let our mind rage out a little bit farther than just our immediate needs and those that we love and things we know they need. And you're concerned about those things, no doubt. And when we seek you first in your kingdom, those things are added to us and you take care of them. But Lord, as we think about your desire that none perish and all come to the knowledge of salvation, then you give us the example of praying for all men anywhere, everywhere. We realize that we impact in a very real way the ministry of the church, that it can dwell in tranquility and peace and do the job it's supposed to do if we're, if we're praying for leaders and all in authority. So we think about uh, wars that are going on and those who are leading them, and we pray for their salvation, that, war, that, that uh, those uh, hostilities can cease and that the, your church can function like she should. We think about our own, our own nation's leaders, that you'll uh, bring uh, forward those people who are believers, no doubt, in the inner circles of many of those in power, and they might be in bold, boldly witness. We might see those whose uh, lives so hostile to godliness and, and Christian virtue and morality be changed and allow the church then to dwell in tranquility and peace and do the job it's, she's supposed to do without uh, government interference. So these are the things we pray about. Help us to become habitual prayers for things farther out than just our own immediate needs. This is pleasing to you. It's your will that we do it. And Father, I pray then for the church that we can dwell in tranquility and peace and all godliness, a vertical relationship with you, doing what your word says, and sincerity, a relationship with the world as they look on, no blemish, no spot, do all things without murmurings and disputings. So Lord, these are things that are so easy to read, they're not hard to understand. Uh, the words make sense, and they are in their context, mean what they mean. It's just very difficult to do them. Lord, it's our desire, if we make any resolution for the new year, the resolution should be to walk more closely in your word than we did the year before, to put to work and put in place those things that you've said to do and to exclude. And so, Lord, that's our prayer, and we beseech you and beg you that this may be the case for each of us. And Father, we thank you for those who are ministering today. We're very grateful for them. We thank you for... Um, those downstairs who are ministering to our children right now. We thank you for those who worked out in uh, hospitality and in the back and, and all of those. We're so grateful for their, their sacrifice. 
and we, we think about uh, the village in India where Gillette's work, and we pray for, for peace there. We pray for the leaders uh, that they'll come to faith and that allow the church to function as she should and take away the persecution. We think about Brazil under so much turmoil now and, and many of our loved ones trying to get in and trying to stay there and, and work hard. And Lord, I pray that you'll open those doors because you bring peace uh, through your son to governments and leaders. And we pray for the peace of Israel as you've instructed us in your word, as she might really become uh, complete, that her, the Jews might be complete Jews, knowing Christ the Messiah. So these are the things that are on our heart today, Father, to be obedient to you and to pray uh, far out from us. And we pray that we'll be about those things. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus, and, G and all God's people said, amen.